church, as we continue in our time of worship, uh, I just want to read the scripture from which David will be preaching this morning. This is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Well, it's great to be able to worship together. Let me add my welcome and um, sentiments for a wonderful Mother's Day for everybody. Um, We're so glad you're joining us, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. As I mentioned last week, Our identity as a church is in the fundamentals, which is why we have our football up here, because it reminds us of the importance of those fundamentals. And we like to highlight three key fundamentals each week. The first is that we are a church on mission. It's easy, easy to forget that, right? We always have to remind ourselves of our mission. We have a vision to reach the tri-state region and beyond, making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we do that by taking our next steps towards Christ together day by day. That is the great commission. That is what we're called to do. So it's a fundamental that we always want to remind ourselves about. Second, we are a church with flaws. And this seems to be the one most people really appreciate, right? Because we're all kind of messed up some level or another, right? No perfect people here in this church. We don't sit in judgment on others, nothing like that, right? But we also don't celebrate the fact that we're kind of messed up. We don't want to stay in that not okay place, which is why we have that third fundamental. We love you enough to tell you the truth in the personal words and works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's so important because that truth is what sustains us. It's that truth that actually matters. It's what happens in our lives. And so we're starting out studying this truth through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We kind of kicked it off last week, but today we're going to really kind of dig into some pretty heavy stuff. It's a place, Ephesus where Paul spent significant time, and he built up the early church. In particular, his letter focuses on belief and behavior, which is fitting to us for us to be studying as we start this whole let's go effort. So that's kind of like that belief and behavior. What we believe is typically how we behave. And that's again where these pillars that we're encouraging people to sign up for will give us an opportunity to really focus on that belief and that behavior. So between now and Advent, we're going to be focusing on the first part, belief, the first three chapters in Ephesians. As we learned last week, what we believe has significant implications for our identity, who we are, especially in Christ. And hopefully, we've all spent some time this past week reflecting on our tombstones, and especially those three questions that they cause us to consider. For example, our birth date encourages us to think about that question, where did I come from? Our death date, the question, where will I go when I die? And then that dash in the middle, the question, why am I even here in the first place? Because answers to those three questions are so important for our identity. They help us know who we are and why we're here. And they become, actually, answers to those questions become kind of the very foundation of our identity. 
Today, Paul's going to help us make headway on this front as he explains things from God's perspective. In particular, his teaching shows us how important it is that we don't rely on worldly wisdom to shape our beliefs. Instead, we must turn to God to inform what we believe, the one who created and sustains the universe. For example, we can be so tempted to hold a worldly view or a set of beliefs about the topic of suffering. Why would God permit us to suffer or to experience pain if he loves us? That's a fair question. We probably all ask that of ourselves at some point or another. And while it doesn't always make sense to the world, the Bible actually teaches that we should expect to suffer. In fact, if you recall from last week when Paul was commissioned, it was one of the three things that was part of his commission, right? He was chosen by God to take the word of Jesus to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Roman authorities, and he would get a chance to suffer for his sake. And despite all that, Paul has this amazing sense of joy and thanksgiving that we'll focus on here in just a minute. You see, God often uses suffering to accomplish his purposes, to build up our faith, and to deepen our dependence on him. But if our belief about suffering is not informed by God's truth, we won't approach it with the right heart. And that's why our belief must always be rooted in God's truth, because it comes from God instead of being rooted in what is the so-called typical worldly wisdom that we tend to find ourselves subscribing to, especially when we spend so much time with the news and social media. So how do we seek God's truth? Well, the same way that the early church did. Two things, Scripture and the Holy Spirit. It has been said that Scripture is often lifeless or stale without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is often silent without Scripture. And surely we've all experienced the dryness of mechanically reading through the Bible without the help of the Holy Spirit. And likewise, we've all struggled to discern the Holy Spirit's counsel and direction when we neglect to read Scripture. So you see, the Word of God and the Spirit of God, they go hand in hand. And that's why we must continually engage with both. We must ask, seek, and knock for the Holy Spirit to make the truth of Scripture come alive to us, to convict us, to comfort us, to counsel us. And that's also what we must do as a church as we study Paul's letter to the believers in Ephesus because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and it contains God's truth about what the church must believe and how it must behave. And God's Word stands forever, so it applies every bit as much to us here in Beaver in the year 2022 as it did back then to the church in Ephesus. And as we set out on this journey, let's all agree to read it, to read it often, over and over again, day by day, with the help of the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you to find an app, there's tons of free apps out there, that actually read Scripture to you. Maybe have it read to you while you're in the shower, you're getting ready for work in the morning. Just read it over and over again. If you struggle with some of the language in some of the older versions of of Scripture, I encourage everyone to consider the message from Eugene Peterson. It just puts it in a nice current language that we can easily understand. These truths that we find here will transform, shape, 
and define our identity in Christ. So today, we're going to cover verses 3 and 4. So Cammie read 3 through 6. We're going to do 3 and 4 today. We'll do 5 and 6 next week. And let's start with just verse 3. We're going to kind of break this apart a little bit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So after that humble greeting we studied last week, Paul launches this letter with a spirit of joy and thanksgiving. Recall, Paul pens this letter from a Roman jail, a place of certain suffering, and yet he's full of joy and thanksgiving. And that right there is a sermon in and of itself. I could just get down and we got the the message for today. Because you see, the Bible teaches that joy and thanksgiving can be found in the midst of suffering. Notice also how the word bless shows up repeatedly. So we got to begin by looking at how we typically use this word bless. And as you're going to see, we typically screw it up. We often hear people say that they're blessed by their home. They're blessed by the favorable weather that we have today. Maybe they're blessed by a pay raise, or they're blessed because they found a $20 bill on the sidewalk. The word also tends to be used to taunt our achievements. I'm very blessed to have a child on the honor roll. We love that one, don't we? But the word blessing in this text doesn't refer to material possessions, worldly comfort, or any type of achievements. Rather, it's used in reference to God and our relationship with Him in a tangible, eternal, and spiritual sense. So again, we must understand things from God's perspective of absolute truth, not the world's perspective. Because oftentimes, the things we think are blessings, like that pay raise, end up being curses by how we spend them. Especially if we use that pay raise on the idols that we have in our lives, or on a night of debauchery, or to fuel materialism. So we often call blessings actually have nothing to do with blessings the way Scripture describes them. In fact, the so-called blessing of a pay raise may actually have moved us further and further away from God. All the while, the physical suffering that we curse each day may actually be a blessing that draws us closer to God. So we've got to be very careful with what we call a blessing, and also how we use what we believe to be a blessing in our lives. So now let's take a closer look at our text today to see what Scripture says about this word bless. A form of the word bless is used in three different ways in this one verse. Each of the original words for bless is rooted in this word eulogy, like we do at a funeral when we speak well of someone. The first one, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word for blessed here is eulogetos, which means to praise and adore. So when someone says they bless God, it means they praise and adore Him. And we ought to bless God by praising and adoring Him more often. But the thing is, you can't just manufacture adoration and praise. It has to come from deep within, at a spiritual level. Kind of like how we respond to a sunset. You know, you're just kind of moving about your day, 
And all of a sudden, like the sun kind of drops lower and lower in the sky, and whatever, it just catches your eye. And you just stop in your tracks. You can't help yourself but to adore that sunset. And even though Paul's imprisonment prevents him from enjoying God's grandeur through a sunset, he still praises and adores God. Why? Because Paul says, God has blessed us in Christ. So the adoration and praise that comes from deep within Paul's spirit here is a result of God blessing us in Christ. Now the second use of the word blessing is eulogio, which means prospered or favored from God. So Paul is blessing or praising and adoring God because God has prospered or favored him in Christ. So this blessing originates from Jesus because in Christ means that it is through him or by his agency that we are blessed. Being in Christ means we belong to him and therefore he advocates for us. We're going to talk a whole lot more about being in Christ in a couple of weeks. In fact, we have four straight sermons in a row on it. It's such an important topic. And what's the favor that we receive? Well, it's receiving every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So this third use of the word blessing is eulogia, which means bounty from God. So these are bountiful blessings from the heavenly places in Christ that result from Jesus advocating on our behalf. And note the adjective for the blessing that Paul uses in this third case is the word spiritual. So it's a spiritual blessing. Just like we learned in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus taught us to ask, seek, and knock for spiritual and heavenly blessings. We also saw Jesus use similar language in the Beatitudes. We studied that way back in August. And you'll recall, he gave us a series of nine blessings. Notice how all the blessings in the second column up there are spiritual, are heavenly focused. Even that one, inherit the promised land, because you remember, or I'm sorry, inherit the earth, because you remember, that's all about the promised land. And the promised land refers to the kingdom of God. And notice the things that God blesses or favors. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, blessed are the persecuted, the reviled. In other words, blessed are the humble. Every one of those words up there speaks to this notion of humility. It's part of what's called the great reversal, where the proud will be scattered and the humble exalted. The first will be last, and the last will be first. You see, it's when we're humbled in a state of humility by both the reality of our sin and God's sovereign goodness that we are then granted access to these heavenly spiritual blessings. And in the Beatitudes, the word used for blessed is markarios, and it captures our response to blessings, which is a sense of happiness or feeling fortunate when we are blessed or favored by God. In other words, you can read these as, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the persecuted. Happy are those who suffer. Happy are those who are humble because they receive God's spiritual and heavenly blessings. Now there's one final distinction 
that John Piper makes that's worth mentioning with regard to Old Testament and New Testament blessings. If you think about it, back in the Old Testament, the Jewish faith was a come and see kind of faith. Israel showcased God's blessings among all the other nations around them. But in the New Testament, there's no geographic center, there's no temple, there's no priests intervening. It's solely focused on Jesus. So it's no longer and come and see how I've blessed my people kind of religion. It's a go into this world and show people how God has blessed you in Christ. That's the kind of a religion. And when we go into the world in response to the Great Commission, it tends to involve suffering. It may even cost us our life. It's perhaps why we're so hesitant to respond to the Great Commission, because there are real and tangible costs to it. But the blessings in Christ both now and when we reach heaven, are so bountiful that they sustain us through any momentary suffering. That's why the emphasis in the New Testament isn't on earthly blessings. It's not on wealth. It's not on health. It's on Jesus and spiritual blessings. So to summarize, a blessing is a statement of praise and adoration for God's sovereign goodness. It's also a condition of being prospered or favored by God, receiving spiritual and kingdom bounty in Christ. Certainly, God's provision of our material needs is a blessing, and we must never take it for granted. But we also gotta be really careful to guard against using those blessings in ways that actually separate us from God. The blessing that Paul extols here, these are all New Testament or New Covenant blessings, which include the new life in Christ. Being in Christ means we have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, now and for eternity. So Paul's teaching here in Ephesians 1 gets our focus on the spiritual blessings we now have access to in Christ. Do you see how the gospel message isn't about worldly prosperity as many people teach today? It's about kingdom prosperity. And then finally we note, as John writes in Revelation 14, 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. You see, even death is a blessing in Christ. The world doesn't teach that at all. It doesn't even know what to do with that. But born again believers do because they have died to their sins already and have been born again, baptized, into a new life in Christ. And they know with full assurance that they'll receive a heavenly crown for all eternity when they die in Christ. So for the servants of Christ, by the will of God, even death is a blessing. So through Paul's repeated use of this word blessing, we get a sense that Paul has something very specific in mind. And we see it here in verse 4, where Paul explains what this blessing is. I broke it into two parts so we can see it more clearly. Part one, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then part two, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now don't zone out on me here. This is really, really important theology. Because this blessing that Paul is on about is because God 
has chosen us in Christ before he even created the world. Just take a minute, let that sink in. It's perhaps one of the most shocking teachings in all of Scripture, but it's in step with all that we've seen throughout our studies this past year, that God is always the first mover. He even chose us before He created us. You see, God chooses us, we don't choose Him. That's the truth. And that, of course, flies in the face of the world's perspective. We must earn our way in everything. But because God chose us before the foundation of the world, salvation is clearly not based on our merit. Can't be. And I realize it's tempting to reject this because it doesn't square with the world. May not even seem fair. But again, we must not establish our belief through the lens of the world. Our belief must be grounded in God's truth. And this is God's truth, that He chose His people in Christ, even before the foundation of the world. And we see this principle all throughout Scripture. God chose Abraham. He chose Moses. He chose David. Jesus chose His disciples. They didn't choose Him. And as we learned last week through the story of Paul's conversion, Jesus even chose Paul, the most unlikely of subjects. God is always the first mover. He chooses His people, and then they respond to Him in obedience. No doubt, this is a challenging teaching, one we must all probably spend some significant time with. But if you read your Bible, you're going to find it over and over again. It's just not an option to dismiss the doctrine of election. This teaching is reinforced more than a hundred times throughout the entirety of Scripture. It's in the Old Testament and New Testament alike. So let's just check out a couple of them. From Colossians, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones. In Romans, there is a remnant chosen by grace. In Deuteronomy, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of this earth. In Luke, and, it will, and will not God give justice to His elect? Letter to Timothy, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Now, part of the challenge with this is these words, chosen. It sounds so elitist, doesn't it? The elect. It sounds elite. We don't like that. But we see in other places in Scripture other use of words, like God's adopted children. We're okay with that. He also used the example of sheep. The sheep know His name because He called them. They're His sheep. They belong to Him. So we just have to be mindful as we approach texts like this that sometimes the language in our modern day can taint the way we view things. But being chosen, being elect, being adopted, being one of His sheep, they're all one and the same. Now, for sure, a great deal of debate has transpired over the centuries as people have wrestled with this teaching. In fact, many denominations in our faith have come about based on their view of this doctrine of election. It's kind of like that doctrine of total depravity that we talked a lot about during the Sermon on the Mount. It's a truth. It's all over Scripture, but it's just not popular to talk about it in church. 
But here at Four Mile, we don't have that choice because our identity is that we're always focused on the fundamentals of truth. And we're going to get into this a whole lot more next week. We're going to unpack this whole notion of election, this doctrine um, that's so important for us to understand. But notice in this text, Paul doesn't really go into a whole lot of detail here. He just asserts it in the context of him thanking God for blessing us with it. But Paul does give us the purpose of the blessing associated with God choosing his people. It's so that they might be holy and blameless before him. Now let's quickly look at those two words. The word holy speaks to God's essence. It's what separates him from all other beings. It's more than just his perfection or his sinless purity. It embodies the mystery of his awesome majesty. And then this word blameless, it's used with regard to being without blemish, meaning something is suitable for a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when animals were sacrificed before God to atone for sin, they had to be without blemish. They had to be perfect. And the only way we can be holy and blameless before God is if we are in him, in Christ, as we see up there in number one above. And that is such an important point for us to close on today because God's essence is holiness. We can only be in his presence if we too are holy or blameless before him. But of course, we're all sinners. So we simply aren't blameless before God. And therefore, we can't be in his presence, which is why before the beginning of time, God chose his people in Christ because only Jesus is blameless, the perfect lamb who is able to atone for our sins. So we can now stand blameless before God because Jesus took our place. He bore the cost of our sins in his death. And by washing us in his atoning blood, we are blessed beyond measure with the bounty of heaven. So I realize this truth may be the first time that some of us in here have confronted it. And it can be a lot to take in. So my prayer this week is that God will tend to us on this matter, that he will grant us the time we need this next week to allow our emotions to catch up with the truth of Paul's words by the help of the Holy Spirit. Then we'll come back next week and we'll unpack it some more to include how the Bible tells us that we can know for sure if we are among God's chosen, if we are among the elect, his adopted children, part of the flock of his sheep. Let's pray. Father, thank you for blessing us with your word today. Holy Spirit, would you counsel, comfort, and convict us of the truth in these words. May they be to us the foundation of our belief. Thank you for being the first mover, for choosing your people out of love and sending your son to save us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So for our response time today, we're going to spend a little more time with our tombstones. Today's lesson about blessings and election 
They help us to begin to put some biblical truth around our identity. So I encourage us all to take a few minutes to consider the truth that God blesses his people by choosing them even before the foundation of the world. And as we wrestle with this teaching, consider how it helps us answer these three questions that shape our identity.